Hey, I'm Alan McGuire. And this is Juvenalia, a podcast where we talk to an interesting person about a bit of pop culture that was important to them when they were young. Our guest today is author and journalist Lauren Bravo. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan. Thank you so much. We're big fans of yours. Uh, you brought a fantastic topic, something neither I nor Sarah had ever watched. Which I'm quite shocked about, I have to say. It's a weird, yeah. Yeah, and I feel like quite a weight of responsibility having brought this piece of culture to you both and sort of told you that it is definitive. I'm just really hoping that it's lived up to my hype. Well, I'm going to say right now it absolutely has. Yeah, um, same. It rocked my world. Say, okay, it's the that. 1995 Pride and Prejudice BBC ad- adaptation. Please tell us why you brought this to us. Okay, so... Um, when we're talking about pieces of culture that were important to us when we were young, this was so seminal for me because it hit me at per- at the perfect point. So I was, um, I mean, it originally went out in 1995 and I do remember very dimly watching it with my mom when I was, you know, seven. But when I really encountered it, I was 13. I was in year nine at school and it happened that um, we were studying Pride and Prejudice in English class at exactly the same point that Bridget Jones came out in the cinema. And so for me, the two pieces of culture will always be completely inextricable from one another. So we were um, we were studying the book and we had a very young English teacher who I think she must have been about 23. A blessing. A blessing is a young Yeah, teacher. right? So she was fresh out of college and she knew that the way to get a, a class of unruly teenage girls to engage with Jane Austen was going to be to show us Colin Firth in the wet shirt. And so as a special treat, after school, I don't think she actually showed it to us in lessons, but after school, we would gather in the drama studio and she projected Pride and Prejudice onto the wall of the drama studio for us so that the proper nerds slash, you know, horn dog girls that didn't actually know any boys in real life <laughs> could, um, <laughs> could all kind of be collected in our, in our mutual adolescent hormonal adult lust. Um, and I just remember it so vividly. I even, there's a perfume that my teacher wore at the time that if I get a whiff of that perfume now. So transporting. It just takes me back there immediately. And so it happened that that term was, yeah, exactly when Bridget Jones' diary came out in the cinema. Of course, Colin Firth, you know, the, um, common denominator between them both and in fact Mr Darcy so Bridget Jones for anyone who doesn't know is a modern retelling of Pride and Prejudice um and so those two things just happening at the same time as well as a sort of volcano of adolescent hormones um mean that yeah this will always just be very very special and and the result was that my friends and I got such an enormous crush on Colin Firth that um I used to print photos of him out and carry them around in my pencil case oh true love I'm telling you there's nothing there's nothing like that compulsion I know I know that feeling clear as day of I must I must have his face just a crumpled face using up my family's printer cartridges I tell you what every half inch of ink was like 15 euro or 15 pounds at the time do you know what I mean like that was not that was not a chill endeavor but it was worth risking my father's wrath for a guy who was like the same age as him as well I think that was one particularly straight <laughs> he was what he was mid-30s then right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. like this is the thing I'd gone straight from fancying kind of boy bands to middle-aged men like there was nothing he was the Pedro him. Pascal of his time mm, right? yeah completely <laughs> where he had that sort of ambivalent like ambiguous mm, older-ish maybe maybe I'm just a really serious 29 you know like we didn't yeah, yeah, it's yeah. very hard to tell you know he could be any age which is um 
just a lovely a lovely position to occupy yeah yeah 100% I mean I had to cut his wife out of some of the pictures like that Uh, you know his beautiful (laughs) Italian wife Uh, (laughs) yeah it was a heady time it really was that's great um my initial like experience of this Pride and Prejudice was that my parents used to buy the Daily Mirror every day and I think from when episode four came out they found an excuse to print the wet Colin Firth picture in the paper with a story every day for about three weeks. Like I felt so aware of the, that this pop cultural event had happened as an 11 year old, just because the Daily Mirror, like I'm sure like all the tabloids were like printing it every single day. Like they kind of whipped up this frenzy into happening. I'm sure it happened quite organically as well among people. But like when I eventually got to actually watch it for this episode, it passes by so quickly. I was like, oh, that, that was it. I thought it was going to be like a, um, like Ursula Andress and Dr. No stepping out of the sea moment. But he's literally like just storming faster and embarrassed about how wet he is. It's totally... But it's not the only wet know. first. Explain Do you know what I mean? Me. There's, there's plenty of wet firsts in it. Do you know what I mean? Like he, he's, he's casually bathing at one point. Oh, yeah, he's, he's talking you know? to the Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he's, there's a lot, of, a lot of kind of wet common moments, but it's that moment in the rain that I think caught the imagination of a... Of an entire generation, I think. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and it, I mean, it's and it, he's only got wetter with time. Do you know what I mean? God, like it, really it was yeah. massive at the time, but it has just become kind of law, hasn't it? Mm. Um, the, like decades. Especially with this television and cinema, is simply never that sexy anymore either. Like what I was struck with having watched it for the first time in the last couple of weeks, I was like, "This is this is like a light," you know. Mm-hmm. And that kind of inbuilt tension and spikiness and um, atmosphere, that that sexy atmosphere, is, is kind of void in a lot of modern yeah. well, TV. It's, and it's, yeah. it's great to see. We love to see it. I don't want to sound like a massive prude, but it is because now, obviously, we just see the sex. Yeah. Like or if even, if we even do, which often we don't, you know? Like, there is a, a resistance to it because when... We know when romances like that fail to catch the imagination of the audience, they're wickedly cringe, you know. So it's very risky to show that on screen. But because it's based on a novel and because it's you know proven as this great love story over time, like the dialogue is there, the vibes are there. It was just a matter of like bringing it to life, which it is. Even now, watching it for the first time, I was like, it's it's so alive, you know. It's mm. it's so current, um, even for something that is nearly. 30 years old yeah i will say my wife did not get the colin Firth thing at all in this she said she couldn't get past the like her primary association of colin Firth is michael peterson in the staircase who probably probably maybe not murdered his wife and she's like i cannot oh yeah i'm just seeing him i have not watched that maybe yeah because i'd like to preserve colin in my heart but it's interesting actually watching it now i mean obviously i still love him but i think the hottest guy in the whole thing is denny captain denny yeah who yeah yeah, like that's pretty fun he's gamey where is he now he's jolly he's got the sideburns yeah um but i mean it's interesting isn't it the sort of repressed horniness i think there's definitely that's part of the reason that it really captured us as the kind of young teenage girls because it's that perfect age where it was kind of safe sexuality Mm. there's something about period drama particularly for teenagers because again it's that it's that safeness it's that kind of way of dipping your toe in that sort of adult world of sexuality without kind of pressures and expectations and I was thinking like Lizzie Bennett in it who's meant to be 20 
you know, she probably had less kind of sexual knowledge than I did as a 13, 14 year old. And that's mm. kind of why it was so great to really revel in it. You know, there was nothing threatening about mm. Because it's all it's all in the energy and all in the unsaid and all in the tension mm. and all these like these these stiff nightmare dance sequences where the two of them are basically being like, "You're the fucking worst person I've ever met." Oh, you're the worst person I've ever met. <laughs> Only written in a like a beautiful like set of barbs towards each other, and yet that is somehow so sexy mm. because it's so reserved and. Um, like if only we had all had that kind of wit, you know what I mean? Coming up, do you know mm. what I mean? Like it, you're you're dead right that it appeals to the repressed bit, the bit where we're all trying to push all that stuff down in ourselves for the vast majority of our youth. And um, I only wish I'd been able to get my head around it when I was that age, because I did Austin in school and in college twice. So I think I've done Pride and Prejudice, like in an academic setting, maybe three times. Oh wow! And I never, ever was able to get my head around it then. And something I, I've come to terms with is that I was simply too stupid. <laughs> I did not have the emotional maturity. I was not. I was simply not smart enough for Austin. Do you and, not think you were too cool, though? Was it not a case of like... I mean, even if I was too cool, so I, was just being an, I was probably just being an asshole. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. accept that it is obviously excellent and move on. But I wasn't, wasn't able to connect to it then. But when I watched it in the last couple of weeks, I was like marveling at it. So it was like seeing it for the first time. You know, even though I had read it time and time again and sort of spitefully gone through it over and over again. Just blew my mind this time for whatever reason. And it could be that particular BBC rendering and the lovely sets and the lovely costumes and the lighting and the way everything looks so completely real, you know? Yeah, I think it, it caused a big stir at the time in period dramas. And I mean, like I say, I was seven years old, so I don't really remember, but... It was something about the fact that it wasn't stiff. It was kind of the first period drama of its kind where hair got messy and women got a little bit sweaty on the dance mm. floor and Lizzie is constantly kind of tramping through mud in the forest. And she's a lot of stomping, yeah. She's yeah, a she's lot of kind gross. of angrily stomping. Yeah. yeah, and people look like they would smell like humans, you know? Mm. And there's, a, there's a kind of musk to everybody. And the rooms look lived in as well. Yeah, they don't look like they don't look like they obviously they are stately homes, but like they don't. But they're look... barren stately homes, which means rooms too big yeah. for the people, and there's not enough decor, mm. and it looks yeah. cold. You can see the mm. the the fit. It's not poverty, but it's the uh, you know rich in land, poor in material. You know what I mean? They're like, yeah. oh, you sure do have this house, but you you can't afford the firewood, can you? Like that, <laughs> you can feel that in the set design. It's it's lovely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was such a fangirl that I actually, for Christmas, a couple of years later, asked for the making of Pride and Prejudice book, which I wanted to re reread ahead of this podcast. And tragically, I can't find it anywhere. I know it is in my house somewhere. Um, but yeah, so I spent weeks just poring over every detail of the production, reading all the little oh. behind the scenes snippets. All the I think there was one day where they were doing a dance sequence and the floor was too slippy, so they had to pour Coca-Cola on it so that it was stickier. And it just sounded so much fun. And you know... I think that's like the high watermark of of really brilliant culture is when you wish you'd been on the set, you know, and yeah. you them they just had the greatest time as well. Um, I don't know if it's worth saying at this point that I don't recognise the Karen Knightley Pride and Prejudice as canon or... <laughs> oh, who is she? Who is she? Who is she? I've watched it once <gasps> just to see. I never wish to revisit. And also it's fine because it's now... Um, 
Darcy, of course, in that one is Tom from Succession. Oh, with his hand. Yeah. I feel like I see more about his hand than I do about the rest of yeah. that interpretation. You know, sure like his little crazy. his little flexing hand. <laughs> I can't I when I found out that that was the same actor in Succession, I was like, I'm I can't I can't associate those two characters. It's like, no, he's de sexualized himself so effectively with Tom. Yeah. He's a it's, nightmare. It really is amazing yeah. to torpedo your sex appeal. So thoroughly. So brave. In pursuit, in pursuit of an enemy. So brave. He's yeah. like Nicole Kidman as Virginia Woolf. So brave. Coming out of the fake nose. Yeah. 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 So I just, I don't recognize it. And I find it hysterical that there's a kind of half generation down from me for whom that is their pride and prejudice. That's their, and it's that's like, guys, you're accepting the imposter, you know? It's like, yeah. Yeah. I, I know. I could never buy Kira Knightley as, as sulky. No. You know? Like she's too gorgeous to be Elizabeth Bennet, surely. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, she's too cheekbony. It doesn't work. Wait, Elizabeth Bennet isn't a wafflet. Do you know? Oh no, no, she's not. not. Party. Yeah, yeah, party exactly. And Mar- and the same with Mister Darcy. Do you know what I mean? They're both dark, moody fuckers. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, and they feel very fully realized, both in their physicality and in their tension and in their dislike of each other. In 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 this. In the in the olden one, but like also the way things are shot back then, and the the grain of the camera, like the look of it, things always feel more real to me from that time, and that could be the cause of nostalgia. But um, it's not glitzy. No, you know? no, not at all. Yeah, and it's I mean it is also just kind of the cream of like British acting talent from the time. Oh yeah, it's just it's heaving with national. Julius Wahala's knocking around in there, like um, Lucy Davis uh, in the office pops up. Uh, Jennifer Saunders, Jesus Christ, you know Jennifer Saunders is Jennifer Saunders not the mother? Oh no, no, um, no it's Alison Sedman. Uh, I've got face Alice. blindness. That's what that is. <laughs> I completely was like, oh my god, it's Jennifer Saunders. It sure isn't. Um, <laughs> but I know what you mean because she could be in there. Like it, she could. It's the same vibe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Alison Stebman, that performance is... Oh, she's brilliant. She's such a bitch. Like, she's fantastic. Like, she's really funny, which is probably where my brain went to, Saunders. Because she's just... Like, she's not fully hysterical, but she's that level exactly under true hysteria. You know, which is the the perfect matriarch, you know? Like, she's so stressed out about how many pounds they're getting every year. She's so stressed out. (laughs) And this is, I think... The the main thing as well. So I showed this to my husband um, for the first time about maybe six or seven years ago. And it was in that week after Christmas, first week of January, where, you know, no one's doing anything. You're cold. You're broke. Um, we stayed in every night. We would <laughs> eat an enormous potato based dinner and then we would get into bed, put the electric blanket on and watch an episode of Pride and Prejudice. And he'd never seen it before. And the, the main thing I think that surprised him was how funny it is. It's really funny. Yes. I, was, I think he was expecting some kind of saccharine romance. And I was like, honestly, romance is secondary in this. Like, it's humor. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, and that is what kind of Austin Heads will tell you is that she's a satirist. She is not really a romance author. And that's what I feel so betrayed by looking back on having been presented Austin again and again in academic settings. Nobody told me it was supposed to be funny. And now, having realised how sharp the dialogue is at every turn and how amazing the dialogue is in these otherwise gorgeous settings, it's just Elizabeth Bennet saying mean shit, you know? <laughs> like, you don't, for for whatever reason, again, might have been just the lack of a frontal cortex or whatever from being in your early 20s, you're just not fully online yet, but the work is so sharp and it's mm-hmm. such elegant satire and... um. The romance is lovely and it's slow building and it's very tangible and very sexy. But I think it's because it boils under how funny it is 
that that's why it works because it's not actually the center yeah. absolutely i read read it for the first time when i was probably late 20s early 30s and again i had no idea you voluntarily read it on purpose yeah someone maybe anna carey was like you haven't read you should read pride and prejudice anna you like it. And i was like yeah okay I'll, I'll give it a try and then i was like within 20 pages i was like i didn't know like old books could be like, i have an english read, but i didn't know old books would be funny in the way that pride and prejudice is funny mm. like mr bennett is so dry and so I, dry. I associate that kind of humor with like 18th century or 19th century novels like at all like it was really really surprising to me oh. and i was in from that first like breakfast scene with just him gently taking the piss out of his entire family you know yeah and you've got everything you've got every kind of humor as well because you've also got the clowning you know you've got like mr collins being this kind of you know r- ridiculous, almost, almost grotesque kind of figure talking about like somebody a- sexualizing themselves for an hour for oh an my god like, oh, proper yeah. toad, toad hall vibes like yeah, yeah. there's a scene in it where the girls he i think he like half walks in on them and you can hear their like incredibly cruel but also ex- incredibly authentic girl laughter echoing yes. down the stairs after mm-hmm. him and i was like I was so horrified yeah. for him. It was so real, you know? I've he's... literally, I've written that down in Ugh. my notes, that moment. And do you know as well, that really taps into the fact that this um, production, even though it's got a male director, it's got a female gaze. Oh, it I does. I love the female gaze. gaze. It's so uncommon to be able to spot it. Yeah. But, you know, because it's, it's, it's really uncommon in general. I think my female gaze uh, films are uh, George of the Jungle. <laughs> um, is 100% no female gaze uh, High Rise is female gaze um, there is no need for that much of Tom Hiddleston's collarbones there's <laughs> one reason which is that the cinematographer is a woman um, and oh, what was the other one there's a very there's a uh, you know a, less than a handful of things that you can honestly go that's from the girls Yeah, that's from the girls and that laughter echoing down the stairs that is from the girls. Yeah. It is so sensitive to how women speak to each other and behave with each other and the exchange of secrets and the exchange of bluntness and of insults. It's, um, oh, it's fabulous. Sorry, it's fabulous. Yeah, it's really brilliant. it is. Do you know, it was interesting. I actually ended up talking about Pride and Prejudice, well, th- this production in my uh, university interview for the University of York, where I didn't end up going. Um, but we talked about it and the guy who was interviewing me kept asking me about the wet shirt scene. He said, why do you think that was a mistake in this production? He was anti the wet shirt. And because I, I mean, I was, I was 18. I was like, I don't think it was a mistake. I think it was, I think it was art. And what he was getting at, it turned out was that the, the crux of that scene in the book is meant to be that Lizzie is mortified that she's been found visiting Darcy's estate when she didn't think he was there is incredibly embarrassing. And because he's in the wet shirt and he's embarrassed, it actually kind of negates what Austin was trying to do with that scene, whatever, whatever. But we just couldn't agree that the um, the wet shirt was unnecessary because that, like you say, it was, you know, the beauty of that female gaze and the fact that mm. you are, you're occupying kind of Lizzie's perspective and actually, she is satisfied to not get married. That's the thing. She genuinely, you know. Oh, you she, believe her. I you know, believe her. Yeah, yeah. She says to Jane, I will end an old maid and I'll teach all your children to embroider incredibly, you know, play their instruments incredibly ill. And you really believe her. And I think that is what makes it so delicious when she is gradually kind of chipped away at by that 
that tension between them and you know she she's not a woman who is looking for love and I think that's really delicious and, I think and because there are so many other women in her family who are looking for love in different yeah. ways and with different levels of intensity and like experiencing different levels of like heat and heartbreak in turns right that mm. her fuck this being undone by what eventually gets to all of us which is some ride in a wet shirt at the end of the day do you know what i mean yeah. like it's a it's a un it's a unifier you mm. know it's like oh yeah and the reason that it's female gaze is that it's out of context it's just calling for it in a, in a wet shirt mm. but it's that there's something ineffable and about the vulnerability about the humor the humor that he is in you know it's not like nudity it's not a display of masculine prowess it's mm. something else and it could be the vulnerability, like you said there yourself, that it could be that vulnerability switch. But there's something really special about it that I think unified a generation of viewers, which is really, really special. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a fact as well that, like, he is so awkward. Like you said, oh, yeah, like, we get... <laughs> and that, that is so delicious. It's not like... Yes. Yeah. It's not like we're sitting around waiting for him to to notice Lizzie and then he chooses her and then we and she swoons. It, it's you know he is awkward as hell, and we get to watch him kind of getting hot under the collar. He's flustered by his own emotions. He's you know it, it's just oh it's joyous and I think it's something that as that teenage girl watching it as well could not have been further from my own life. I didn't know any boys and I have to say this. You're better off. They were no fun. They, they, they were no use until they were 28, most of them. Do you know what I mean? They were pain in the arse. Like this, it, what this did was really instilled in me a, mm. a deep-seated belief in brooding and the power of brooding. And what it meant was that when I finally got to a, um, a co-ed sixth form college, I believed that the only way to get a boyfriend was to sit in the corner of a classroom glowering at them. That's and... great. Good method. It kind of works. <laughs> Thanks. Right? Yeah, no, it didn't. didn't work for me. Oh, no. Uh, no, not at all. Just not even a tiny bit. Um, <laughs> never occurred to me to talk to them. Maybe try having a conversation. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, I, the other thing of this is I find it interesting because obviously Darcy has then become such a trope. Mm. The, you know, we actually have kind of obviously rom-coms, um, romance novels these days are categorised by by tropes like enemies to lovers. Oh, they're sold by them. It's the bread and butter. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, I always find it, I always find it slightly bemusing when people will just categorise it like it's Pornhub, you know? It's like, we've got enemies to lovers. Oh, worse. It's not, just por- it's not just Pornhub. It's AO3. Yeah. It's fanfics. <laughs> These girlies are in there. They are strolling out of the fanfic mines mm-hmm. with bags of diamonds over their shoulders. And I respect them. However, yeah. their language is a tell. Yeah. Enemies to lovers, only one bed. Girl. Right. I've, I know. I've seen you in Tumblr. I've been on Tumblr since I was eight, maybe 17 years old. You know, like I know what you're doing, and you're doing it well and doing it correctly. I'm doing it but... well, and and it's efficient. You know, I've got to say. Oh, I mean, straight to the point. You're is kind of like you know it is you up. Like, yeah. yeah, just we're 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 doing it by by numbers here. You know, yeah. But uh, but when it comes to Mr. Darcy as an archetype, this sort of brooding hero, I was really surprised going back to it again, having been sort of force fed it in college and not really internalizing it at all because I was a shit student and also not smart enough. But going back to it now. And being so impressed by that original, we knew, obviously there's no origin of the archetype, but how effective he is. Mm. Like it, you really are like, oh no, yeah, yeah, oh yeah. no, 
like even now right and you can see how his broody eyebrows and mean mouth spawned a generation of tiny tiny little darcy's uh all across the the board you know mm. and same pride and prejudice surely that like various rochesters across the across the board as well yeah i think it's interesting as well because like you were saying about Darcy and Elizabeth being incredibly real, it's the fact that they're so, they're flawed and they're flawed right through to the end. I think a lesser writer would have Darcy actually turn out to be perfect in the end and, you know, it was all misunderstanding. Mm. Whereas actually what I kind of, it hits me every time when I watch this through to that sixth episode is like, they're still both a bit fucked up. You know, they still, the, the pride and the prejudice are both there. It's not like, oh, yeah. you know, get beyond they- they don't salvage each other's personalities. They sort of meet in in their own bad temperedness, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I think because of their the the uh, the the parents' relationships, the the Mister and Missus Bennett, you know, the sort of the thing that they have going on, which is that Mister Bennett is kind of docile and, and and doting, and Missus Bennett is sort of. I'm not going to be like she's hysterical, but she's going through some shit she's very worried about pounds she's very worried about how many pounds everyone has all the time (laughs) and their dynamic is so different from the dynamic that you know Bennett and Darcy have do you know what I mean Mm. but they also are like they're also two very different people and two very different people I don't know I think that there's a you don't have to be exactly the same and soft and sweet you can still be different and spiky in your own ways and and Mm. that that still works and is fun for both of you. you yeah, know? having the verbal dance off for decades. Still for decades, and you want that for them. Yeah, you know? and it's the antithesis to Bingley and Jane, of course. You know, you've oh got the you've got the kind of the sweet vanilla couple who are just Jane. Yeah, <laughs> simpering. No, and no harm meant to them. Do you know? No, no, bless them. You know, it's it's lovely. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's something interesting as well, isn't there? In the like. Lizzie is so determined not to repeat her parents' mistakes. There are some quite, some lines that really cut to the quick, actually, you know, where she sort of says, um, what is it, a marriage in which either party cannot love or respect the other, that cannot be agreeable. And she says, as we have daily proof. And, you know, it's, it's poignant. It's really quite gutting when her dad has those conversations where he makes it clear that, it's not a love marriage for them. And, you know, yeah. they're kind of both trapped in this prison of the time that they're in. Um, and yeah, I think that, you know, if it's not a, if it's not a romance, first and foremost, it's a, it's a kind of commentary on, you know, the social conventions of the time and the fact that family ultimately it sort of dictates everything. And I, I just kept thinking when I was watching it again this time, like, Imagine if we had to date today with our families in tow. Like, would, anybody, would anybody ever get it on if no. you had to take your mom on every Tinder date? <laughs> and also the stress of five girls. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Or there isn't five. There isn't five of them. Is there surely? There's yeah, five. Yeah, it's five. Yeah, it's yeah. five girls. Yeah. Do you know what mm. I mean? Like it's played for laughs, but I'd be fucking worried too. <laughs> if mm. I had to five, find five reasonable estates of good social standing for my girls yeah, yeah like that's not small pressure no. you know so absolutely she's on her date sitting at the corner at the wall watching them all do their weird sti- their weird stiff dances yeah. you know like that is a uh, that's no fun you know that, that that's primed to make you a crazy person who doesn't really have a lot of fun with your 
your in in your own marriage anymore because your occupation is then organizing a small village and a set of legacies you know so it does it is all social commentary of a particular time as well and um something i guess we can be thankful for is that we are freed of it now that it doesn't actually come into it 100 percent, yeah i mean so one of the reasons as well that um this kind of sprung to mind for, for for you guys was that um the barbie movie has this incredible moment and i mean in in a in a film filled with kind of laugh out loud moments this is the one that in my cinema had everybody howling because it was so unexpected i know what you're about to say and it's when they have they have depression barbie and they're running through all the depression barbie's kind of traits and and it's that she has been you know in her sweatpants or whatever watching the bbc pride and prejudice and they flash it up you get a little clip of it and yeah they do and i howled because it was that that gorgeous thing where you suddenly feel so seen and so recognized and it's so unexpected because i think in my very naive way I didn't know this was a thing in America. And I have mm. since discovered that it was massive in America. It was enormous. It went out in America like the same time that it went out in the UK and it was huge, but very naively. And it was like seeing your nan's biscuit tin pop up in Hollywood or something. It just felt so, hang on, but that's that's, that's a piece of my was, life and my culture. That and was something that happened to me personally yeah. and not you. Right, yeah. I own this. I carried Colin around in my pencil case. And um, yeah, and I just, I, it was just so wonderful. And it just really kind of, I think, highlighted that this has a very long tail. Um, and it's still- I think you've hit on something really, really interesting there because like there, there is a sort of a shock moment that you get when you feel as though you're, the things that you sort of are carved and shaped by and that are really fundamentally important to your sense of personhood or that are things that you revisit privately when you feel like shit. You know, the things you go to sit down and watch when you feel terrible, like they aren't a performance. They aren't a quirky t-shirt that you wear. They aren't um, part of of, of the, the outward facing elements of your life, right? They're kind of a quiet chapel that you visit when you feel terrible and you need to feel something good right that's like the real nice bit of nostalgia is the actually going home again bit um and then when you realize that it is that what you're doing is such a ubiquitous thing that it pops up in the barbie movie like there is it's shocking to be so the same as everyone you know and that's I, i i get caught by that all the time with different things and um, particularly with Miyazaki and uh, Hell's Moving Castle and the huge ubiquity of Hell's Moving Castle among 35-year-old women across <laughs> the world. And it's like, hang on, all of you? Where the fuck were you when I was a teenager? <laughs> yeah. what, all, of, all of you? Really? Um, and all of you, absolutely. I just didn't I just didn't know. We didn't have the same level of connectivity or the same level of sharing back then when we, when we were growing up. And we kept our weird stuff inside our pencil cases where nobody except our very <laughs> close friends could see them. So you do feel snagged when you get called out on a kind of a huge cultural level, but also really connected to people. Yeah. So it's like this push and pull of, no, but that's mine. And that also that exhale of, oh, but that's all of us yeah. as well. Yeah, completely. It's gorgeous. I mean, this is, it. you know, when we talk about comfort viewing, this is comfort, mm. such a, like the Sunday tea time-ishness of that theme music. Yes. The overstated. It's thematically very antique roadshow, right? Oh, it's got so a kind of a yeah, a jauntiness <laughs> to the point where I, when I um, had my baby at the beginning of this year, 
Pride and Prejudice was the thing that I loaded up on my iPad to take to hospital with me. Oh. I, I sat on a hospital bed. I was, I mean, well, I want to say I was in labor. I was waiting for an um, elective cesarean. It's not quite as dramatic, but I sat there watching episode after episode of Pride and Prejudice because I just thought to myself, what is the most comforting thing that I could have yeah. with me? What will be my kind of audio? What feels like home? What feels like home? And And it was this. And I have no regrets. It was just the perfect choice. And I was just so smug <laughs> about it. And um, yeah, and it is, it's just, you know, that that music. I think even if you didn't watch it on a Sunday tea time, that music immediately transports you to a kind of Sunday tea time of the heart. Um, wow, it does. It has a, like, when I, I, that was what I was struck with. And the feeling that I had seen it before, although I hadn't, like yeah. there is a comfortableness to it. And it is like, a perfect piece of piece of like moving furniture for your home. My one, my version of that is the X Files, where I just kind of go through long swathes of time where I have like rolling X Files because of the color palette, the wider soundscape, the texture of it. And this particular issue of Pride and Prejudice has a texture, right? It yeah. has like a feeling to it that's really really hard to describe. It's um. Like I was very hesitant going back in. I was like, I cannot believe that I am yet again faced with Jane Austen in my adult life. I thought I left that bitch in the dust. And I am so glad that I got to revisit her now and feel that softness. Yeah. You know, like it's really special. It really is. I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased that you enjoyed it. I think I would have felt mm. just devastated had you not, had you been lukewarm. Oh look, I was worried, but I've I've been I've been brought around on genuinely terrible things, Lauren. But this is uh, this is this is exquisite. So I'm I, I am more like oh god, I can I can just lash that on wherever now and feel good about it, you know. Um, Alan, what did you? What was your? Because you you obviously have a cultural memory of it as well. But what did you feel about it from a dude's perspective as well, especially? Um. Okay. Let me see. What's What's a dude's perspective on this? Caught you on the fly uh, here. Because it is, cause it is yeah. female gaze all the way, right? Yeah, no, I shouldn't have expected to have to talk about Pride and Prejudice on this Pride and Prejudice episode <laughs> podcast I co-host. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and I think what always comes across when I think about Pride and Prejudice is that the, like the, the version of Pride and Prejudice in the ether is not Pride and Prejudice. And the, the, the Darcy that when people say things are a Darcy they're not really a Darcy mm. but people think people like actual Darcy is so much more introverted and almost like you want to say it almost on the spectrum you might say these days he is very like every he has a very fixed version of the world yeah and has no time for anything that's not in that fixed version of the world and actually went to very stressful when something is not part of his fixed version of the world and there's no qualms about expressing that that either. Yeah. 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 He is a stand by the bookcase, a parties person. And I'm like, I I get that. I get, I'm, I'm not Darcy, but I do get Darcy. But you know, the standing by you the know? bookcase stuff, even in the cinematography, it's it's very funny. When yeah. you just kind of oh, see yeah. him in the back <laughs> of the scene, is, yeah. you know, he just, the he's camera, always just looking out windows and stuff. The camera yeah, just pans yeah. over to him and he's just kind of standing there like he doesn't know what mm. to do with himself. Yeah, you know? he's awkward. And it's, yeah. it's funny, you know, not until you said that, Alan, this minute, I've suddenly thought, actually, and he, you know, this will go to his head if he hears it, but I think I'm married to a Darcy. <laughs> and, and that's... <laughs> <laughs> that's not not to pay him the uh the compliment it might sound like that's you know my husband is one of those very straightforward people he sees the world in quite a black and whitish way 
And he finds it quite frustrating when people present him with the many shades of grey that social kind of convention is made up of, if that makes sense. So, Mm. and yeah, no, and it's only just kind of dawned on me that 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 is the man that I'm with, is someone who, you know, yeah, like you say, kind of needs things to operate within a certain kind of... uh, framework but i find frameworks like that really relieving to be around mm. like as a chaos agent i uh, i love <laughs> being faced oh, with, with people who uh, operate within a structure because it helps me you yeah. know and um i also think it's very beautiful that when we're when we're, before we have ever, we've any dealings with the people we're attracted to of, of, of either gender in the world mm. we have these stories that inform us in whatever way or imprint onto us like baby ducks <laughs> what romance looks like but also what tension looks like mm. you know like it gives us a pathway to walk even if we don't really have a light for that pathway it sets us on some intangible path towards what we are attracted to like there are archetypes and prototypes that we probably don't even have a full awareness of the whole time that we wander towards and you might very well wake up one day and go like you like in this exact moment where you're like oh he kind of is like that yeah yeah you know like it does actually that that's the the kind of the deep purpose of fiction is to teach us about the best parts and the worst parts and all the other parts of the world that we don't have access to is to open us up Mm -hmm. so austin in the fucking early 1800s is out here writing a weird blueprint (laughs) for all of us to find the kind of push and pull in the world that really works isn't that kind of amazing yeah I love that and I I mean it's that taxonomizing isn't it that women have Mm. kind of been obsessed with um you know since the day dot we love to put ourselves into kind of boxes and I guess it's maybe because society will do it for us if we don't do it first but it's you know it's which March sister are you it's which sex in the city character are you it's which spice girl I'm the city myself oh you're the city you're the good character (laughs) love it yeah (laughs) I myself and Manhattan Island Uh, but no you're right if we don't put ourselves in the boxes the world will do it for us yeah so it's just there's something very quite like and it's something very satisfying I think I you know and it goes back to those magazines that we were reading when we were growing up it was kind of flow charts putting you into into those boxes I mean I wrote about this a lot in my my first book which was called what would the Spice Girls do and was very much about kind of being a you know a very young Spice Girls fan um and and you know Jane Austen absolutely I think particularly with Pride and Prejudice there's something so delicious about that spectrum of five girls who all have different personalities and no one's going to voluntarily say there are Mary, but there must be some Marys out. Some, there's some Marys <laughs> out there. We all have weeks, months of our lives where we are <laughs> stiff and sitting at the piano, and you know, like, like there is that that set that perfect five set, you know. Mm. And the real coming of age thing, I find this every time I go back to um, every so often we talk about Scott Pilgrim on this podcast or on the other podcast. Whenever I go back to Scott Pilgrim, I'm like, I am all of these people, you know. Like there are shows and, and stories and archetypes and kind of modern myths that you go back to and uh, space is another one for me. That when you go back, you find yourself in a different character's body in a different part of your life. You know, yeah. like you might have a, a real Elizabeth Bennet here. You know what I mean? You might have a season in your marriage that is Mr. and Mrs. Bennet. Mm. You might have a particularly shitty summer where you're scowling at everyone and leaning against the bookcase and you find yourself the Darcy. <laughs> you know? 
One Let's day you wait to see a Lady Catherine de Bourgh. <laughs> Someday. <laughs> you know? Like there's 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 ways that's the nice thing about having texts that you revisit and you go through and that come with you through your life from your teenage years in, in a school gymnasium all the way up to the rooms where you brought a child into the world. Mm-hmm. Is that you move from person to person in the stories depending on what you need. So the the grand five Bennett sisters gives us permission to move between them rather than to assign ourselves just one of them do you know and it's the same with second city girls same with spice girls it's all about being able to uh flick around them and the labels that we give ourselves as women in order to survive are interchangeable yeah which is delightful that you don't have to remain a sporty spice forever yeah i love that i love that so much i'd written down in my notes was uh, lizzie the original pick me girl because there is something kind of (sighs) Not and is Mr. Darcy the original Sigma male? Like hey. there is, yeah. There are there are modern the TikTok babies when they discover this, they're gonna lose their goddamn minds because it because because she kind of is, and that's also yeah. okay. Yeah, I'm not oh, like Mr. Darcy. My sisters. Totally has dipping mustards. He yeah. totally has dipping yeah. mustards. <laughs> <laughs> Such a Sigma move. Yeah. Oh my god. Normal world. These are my dipping yeah. mustards. Yeah. <laughs> um, but 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 if you but if you were among five sisters, would you not want to strike out? Yeah, you know, that's the argument of the pick me girl. Like having been one, having been a girl who liked video games and worked in a video game store and wasn't like other girls, blah 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 mm-hmm. blah blah. Patriarchal mm-hmm. bargaining as a teenager before you understood what feminism was. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> of course you are. You know, like to accept that you have been or have a potential to be a pick me girl is to be free. You know, hundred <laughs> percent. So this event it's free. You know. She's free. She's uh, her petticoat is inches deep in mud. She's loving it. She doesn't care. She ran so that a few years later I could walk around Sixth Form College holding a vinyl record under my arm and hoping a man would ask me about it. (laughs) (laughs) I did. Mm. And so you should have. Anyone who Mm. complains that they didn't is fucking lying. Anyone who didn't have the Mucky Petticoats iteration of the ukulele. Handle, oh, or yeah. the um or the record or the DSLR camera mm-hmm. that you didn't know how to use. Like there is Elizabeth Bennett's all of us. Yeah. You know? Like and uh I don't think there's something wrong with that either. Yeah. I think 100%. it's like we all want to be picked. <laughs> you know what I mean? Also, I mean I've just I've just remembered I'd also written down here the private pain of Caroline Bingley. Which, because hey, look, if we're all a bit Lizzie Bennett, then we're all a bit Caroline Bingley. And actually, that was one. That was an interesting thing on rewatching. She breaks my heart more now. Yeah, sympathising so much more with her because again, you can feel like, hey, she may be rich, she may have the feather headdress, and whatever, but she still needs to find a husband just like anybody else does. Yeah. And the fact that this, you know, this plucky upstart with her muddy petticoats is coming in and taking Darcy from under her nose and you can just feel that pain and that agony when she's kind of she's slagging Lizzie off she's you know she's kind of in Darcy's ear as well Uh, she's sort of like his bitchy gal pal who's like Mm -hmm. "Mm." but like the way they have her costumed and the way they have her presented and again in a very stripped back world where nobody looks you know it, it is huh. a glamorized period drama and i generally have huge distaste around period dramas in general but um i really like the strip back kind of vibe of this she is costumed and make made up in a really harsh way oh yeah 
So she is stiff. Mm. She is like her her deep eyebrows, her harsh cheekbones. Like there's a sort of a tightness mm. and a um a like she's drawn in a really stark contrast visually to Lizzie Bennet. Yeah, she's all and uh, no softness. And uh, that kind of sucks, you know, because you're kind of playing the bad, you keep playing kind of like the bad guy, you know. Like, so maybe is she the pick me? Is she the, you know, like oh, she's up against Lizzie, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 speaking of bad guys, oh sorry, no, go on, Lauren. No, no, no. I was just going to say, yeah, she's the alternative pick me. She's the pick me that doesn't mm. get picked, which is the most heartbreaking thing. And she's trying so hard, but she's just using the sword instead of the pen or whatever. The other thing, you know, she's she's <laughs> not gone about it the right way, but the, her framing and her design in that landscape is so arch and so... Um, she's got the shadow following him around, do you know? Hey, what were you going to say, Al? I was going to say, speaking of villains, like the whole Wickham and Lydia thing, like fully, mm. like for, for like a, like the second most like popular book in Britain ever or something. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about the whole, ha- like fully half the book is about this girl who had sex before marriage and will ruin her entire family yeah. if it comes out. Yeah. Um, I, I I literally had forgotten that entirely when I was watching it. And I was like, I do not know how this ends. I cannot remember anything about this because it's just so overshadowed. I think all, like all the kind of canon book kind of have that yeah. thing that just gets overshadowed by the main thing, but like. Yeah, Wickham is such a great film to me. Yeah. Like, I, lo- I really found him very interesting this time around. Well, because he unfolds so slowly as well, you yeah. know. Mm. Meet him and he is all charm and all easy. Oh, so charismatic. He's like, oh, Mr. Darcy and my family, we did something terrible, but doesn't matter. I'm in a jolly good sport yeah. the rest of the time, girls. <laughs> like, it's so, he's such a gay bag. Like, he's terrible, you know. I really <laughs> wanted to be a vicar. Oh, oh. Really <laughs> <wanted to> be <laughs> but yeah no and it's 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 seedy and it's dark and i think and i mean i think one of the reasons that this adaptation particularly is so successful is because it is six hours long and it needs to be because it really gives you the time and the space to draw out that kind of character development mm. and um, i remember reading in my in my behind the scenes book um, they added a line that is not in in the book, which is when Lizzie says, um, our whole family must partake of her ruin and disgrace. And they felt that they needed to add that line in for for modern audiences so that they understood Why just how mean? monumental a fuck up this was, that Lydia yeah. was, you know, living with him in London. And, um, and yeah, and I think you do, you feel that weight of it, you feel that panic. And that sense of like, because my 15 year old sister has made a stupid mistake as all 15 year olds. And also Lydia was brimming with joyful sexuality the whole time. Yeah. And that's what's heartbreaking about it. And like, like she's so giddy. She's so alive. She's so excited and playful and like bitchy and girlish that it's the cruelest defeat. Yeah. You know, like it's the worst thing that you can do to someone as vibrant, and it is Julia Swallow who plays her. Who plays her? Yes, yeah. And is. she's in 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 a really different role to the one that I would recognize her largely in, which is as a very grumpy, much more Elizabeth Bennet-ish, Safi yeah, yeah. and Fab. Yeah. Um, she is brimming with energy mm. until yeah. 
But then even even once, you know, even afterwards, she thinks that she's won. She thinks that she's yeah. she's got her guy. Yeah, know? it's never clear that she realizes that she's fucking. No, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. you know, it's coming down the line for her. Like at some mm. point, she's yeah, things are going to turn sour. But yeah, that mo- that triumphant moment for her where they're walking back into the house and she says, "No, um, no, Jane, you must go after because I am a married woman now." You know, she uh. has usurped all her sisters. She's leapfrogged over all of her older sisters to kind of claim that prize. And it, yeah, I mean, it's 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 painful to watch. Like it's you know, I, they don't pull any punches with kind yeah. of emphasizing that stuff in the in the in the show. And I mean, there's that wonderful moment right at the end when you've got the double wedding, and they pan around all of the bitter characters. You know, you go and they kind of they cut to Lady Catherine de Bourgh and her sickly daughter sitting in their enormous mansion. They cut to the the Bingley sisters, kind of looking like they've got a mouthful of cold sick. And they cut, I think, to Lydia and Wickham kind of looking shagged out somewhere in the north. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and it is this savage moment of like, oh, yeah, kind of vindication, I guess, for the pure of heart who've, um, who, who've yeah, sort of won out in the end. But, oh, no. I love just- a double wedding as well, man. That's real oh. guys and doll shit. You don't see enough double weddings anymore. <laughs> you really don't. That moment, really don't. this man and this woman and this man. This man and this woman. <laughs> That intonation, it's almost like a tiny Tim who did not die. <laughs> <laughs> you just want to punch it really the air. Is, it really is. I rewatched Guys and Dolls on the plane to, I was going to the States and for some reason um, Delta have all of the fucking musicals on their, their Sky TV. Oh, so it just got really ticking to the musicals. And the, f- the finale of Guys and Dolls is Stone Cold Marlon Brando and Frank Sinatra marrying, marrying the two gals from the movie who are both real actresses in their own right but named as escape me at this point um but bring back the fucking double wedding in culture yeah relieve yeah. us all of the pressure everyone should be doing it communally split the cost. You, know? you know like instantly. split the cost bigger sesh nobody loses yeah absolutely love it yeah you know no, that's just- one thing we should be learning from this really in the long run is to bring back the double <laughs> wedding it's just reminded me that when um, we were really excited, my friends and I went, uh, somebody got a DVD player for the first time and they got Pride and Prejudice on DVD. So we're talking, this is kind of 2002 times. And we were all really excited because a DVD, as opposed to a v- um, VHS, meant that we could freeze frame on Darcy's face perfectly. Yes. yes. <laughs> and just watch him brood. And we spent, I'm sure it was like uh, the Christmas holidays or something, we just spent sitting in her living room, just freeze-framing on Darcy in the bath, freeze-framing on Darcy in the lake, freeze-framing on Darcy <laughs> brooding in the corner. Um, and the wedding, there was definitely some fun to be had with the britches and the, uh, yeah. This is the great, the great oh my feminine God. unifier. Yes, isn't there? Uh, Bingley. Um, <laughs> d- d- like... Yeah, I remember, yeah, it's a few weeks since I watched this now, but I remember like pausing and saying to my wife, was that there the whole time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bingley doesn't have a lot to recommend apart from his 5,000 a year. And yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you can keep your Bridgerton. That's all I'm saying. Like, <laughs> I don't I don't need it. I don't want it's to. It's implied. It is what is on set. 
that counts, <laughs> I think, you know. So that's what goes on. Yeah, the, the great feminine unifier of finding, like, the just picking out the very particular details. Myself and my, my best friend used to do that with Moulin Rouge. We would just watch you and McGregor crying just over and over again at the end of Moulin Rouge, which I don't know what says about us, but we were really into it. So we were just like, yes, this is amazing, you know. The power of the rewatch for the first time. You know, when you when you can go back and zoom in on things. Very, very important. Kids these days, just yeah, they, they, can screen, they think they can screenshot everything. But like, my God, the power of those freeze frames. Stay with you forever. Oh, we've done a lot of talking. Yeah, sorry. It's been fun. Do you, <laughs> yeah. No, this is great. Uh, do, do you have any more notes? Yeah, are we missing anything? Any final notes? Are we missing anything before we hit the dusty trail? I think so, you know. Uh... uh, uh... No, I think we've gone through everything. Amazing. Well, in that case, oh, yeah. Lauren Bravo, please plug everything. Yes. Plug. Where can everyone find you? Where can everyone read you? Bring people. Bring people your way. <laughs> please, please come to me. I don't go out. Um, my novel, Preloved, is out now in hardback, and it is out in January in paperback. It's a kind of bittersweet millennial comic novel about a woman working in a charity shop. Um, and I am at Lauren Bravo on Instagram, on Twitter, everywhere you might find me. Uh, the benefit of having a weird name is that you can always get your handle. So yeah, please come to me. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such oh, a joy. Enjoy. Thank you so much. Um, Sarah, where can we find you? I'm not actually on Twitter anymore, uh, which is a very hard statement, uh, but was not a it was not a hard decision when it came down to it. Um, I'm long gone now from twitter.com. Um, peace, goodbye forever. I am instead on Instagram at Sarah Griffith, at Sarah Griffsky where I post videos of my cat um, and very normal commentary on Big Brother. Um, I'm also on the Clock app uh, at Sarah Grifsky and on the Sky Sarah Grifsky. I've been saying for exactly a year that I have news with a capital N coming. I can confirm that I will be able to actually divulge that news in the next few episodes. I remain having news coming. Alan, <laughs> what about you? Uh, I'm also not on Twitter anymore. Uh, I am on Twitter. I am on Instagram and TikTok sometimes, but not much. Um, Juvenilia is still around though. Juvenilia mm. is Juvenilia underscore pod on Twitter and Blue Sky. Uh, and it's also on Instagram. We have a Patreon where we talk about what we started and finished recently. Um, there's been some Big Brother talk, there's been some Zelda talk recently. I think our started finished episodes are some of our finest work, to be honest, Al. Like, it's a really, really <laughs> lovely vibe. It's it's always a lot of fun. So if you mm-hmm. care about what we do and if you're interested in what we do, please come over to Patreon and, and hang out with us on Started Finished. We have a good time. You should have a good time with us. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Dee McDonald, for our artwork. Thanks, Dee. Thank you to Cassie and Tall Tales for having us. Love you, Cassie. And thank you again. Lauren Bravo. Oh, Lauren. Brian Prejudice, BBC, 1995, Into Our Lives. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye.